Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Down to a Science podcast, where we examine the world of science, broadly speaking, from social and historical perspectives. I'm your host, Lilia. In today's episode, I talk to historian Michelle Murphy about what she calls the politics of quantification. Of the things we like to count, there are perhaps two that we like to count more than any other, people and money. Murphy's book, The Economization of Life, explains how the concepts of population and economy arose together in the 20th century and created the conditions for racist programs of population control. She talks about how economic calculations value some lives and not others, and argues that programs that exhort us to invest in girls continue this tradition today. But before we hear from Murphy, I have to talk about eugenics, which is the haunting backdrop that hangs behind Murphy's argument. Eugenics is the idea that humans should intervene in their own biological evolution by deliberately selecting traits to be passed on to following generations, by allowing people with those traits to reproduce, while crucially, preventing people with undesirable traits from reproducing. Eugenics movements throughout the Western world are now seen as demonstrably racist projects, especially as eugenics became associated with the Holocaust post-World War II. In our interview and in her book, Murphy argues that when it no longer became acceptable to control human populations under the logic of biological evolution, it remained acceptable and still remains acceptable to control human populations under a logic of economic development. We begin our interview as she begins her book with an image, or rather a series of three pictures taken in the 1920s by biologist Raymond Pearl. It's a picture of a jar of fruit flies taken at three points of time. And it's an experiment that Pearl did to show that population, so the fruit flies in the jar, adhered to a kind of law in which they would go through a period where they would uh, multiply rapidly and then reach a kind of upper limit and experience a kind of die-off. And that this would be a kind of universal law that all organisms, whether it be bacteria or fruit flies or humans, um, would go through. So this is an important moment in experimentalizing population. So not just kind of using this experiment to reveal this purported law of population, but then to set it up as something that could be intervened in, could be modulated in. Can you adjust the experiment in some way so that you avoid the moment of massive die-off. This becomes the problem of population control that was so important both to eugenics and the second half of the 20th century. But the images aren't just a fruit flies, remember, but a fruit flies in a jar. And this jar is incredibly important to both Pearl and Murphy. The way Pearl thought of the jar in this experiment, the jar wasn't didn't stand in for something like nature or ecology. It stood in for the idea of the economy. So his argument was that, yes, this law of population growth um, happened across all uh, organisms, but for humans, um, the condition or the container in which this law um, operated in, the most important vector was economics. And so this experiment kind of set up the question of, can you change the resources in the jar to affect population? And so it entangles kind of the question of economy and population together for the first time. 
Pearl gets celebrated by some scholars as being someone who was against eugenics. But, you know, he was quite racist in his work. And he was, I would say, instead of putting forward an argument where we should manipulate life for the sake of eugenic evolutionary futures, he was using this kind of experiment in his work to put forward an argument that we should manipulate life for the sake of economic futures. So by economic futures, like what, what do you mean then? So what I mean by that is, you know, the, the time of that when Pearl was doing that work was kind of between the 19-teens and the 1920s. And this was also the moment when the idea that a nation had an economy, a macro economy, that the nation was a container for a system that could be called economy, was kind of coming into existence as an idea. So the same moment that like Pearl is experimentalizing population, we're beginning to have things like um, Keynesian macroeconomics or models of macroeconomy that then has a set of relations inside of it, like relations between interest rate and employment, for example, that you can manipulate one relation, like change the interest rate, in order to get an adjustment in the other relation, let's say the employment rate. As Murphy says, it was only at this moment in time that the jar could be understood to be a national economy, with all the relations of cause and effect that came with it. This is a particular historical moment of the dual emergence of economics and population. As the economic jar was arriving, so were the popular flies. People made connections. You could do things to the jar that would affect the fly population, and you could do things to the human populations to affect the national economy. The greatest version, the kind of most symbolic version of this way of understanding economy as the macro economy or the national economy is the measure of GDP. GDP as the metric, the pulse of the economy. And so at this moment in the 1930s, you have the beginning of the establishment of, you know, large state statistical projects in the UK, in the United States and in India gathering the data so that you can have the measure of GDP, which becomes such an important measure over the course of the 20th century for deciding the value of all sorts of things, including the value of life. Right. Uh, yeah. So to get into GDP, um, this is something that I personally learned about, given my history of listening to a lot of podcasts through Planet Money and things like that. And the way that I hear it discussed on planet money is GDP is basically the sum of all transactions that occur in a national economy. The way that they discuss it is it's the sum of all these transactions and whether they're positive or negative, even if two businesses exchange $200 back and forth, it still gets counted every time, right? So they, that's the way that they talk about why GDP may or may not be a good measure for thinking about the economy. So why do you talk about GDP in, in your argument? When you look at GDP and you look at its history, you see the question of, you know, what gets counted? What gets counted is the fulsomeness of all the transactions. Well, you know, what gets counted, we can say, is things that involve the formal economy and money. What doesn't get counted is any kind of non-wage labor. So that includes all sorts of reproductive labor. It includes forms of barter. 
It includes kinds of labor and exchange that happens in informal economy. So all those things don't count towards GDP. So GDP doesn't care about your garden that you use to support yourself. It doesn't care about you and your, your neighbors coming together in a collective to try to make a sustainable way of life. GDP doesn't care about your, let's say, livestock if you don't sell them. So it erases all this kind of work of care, subsistence, and care for one another in households as well as in communities that actually we could say and that, you know, feminists say make up the important part of labor. And the other thing that GDP does is that it tends to, um, because it's measuring always the, the plus of the transaction, let's say if something like a, a war happens, GDP measures the all the sales that go into the weapons and the equipment for reacting to uh, death and destruction, the humanitarian supplies and the NGO work and the contractors, all that goes into measuring the GDP, but there's no debit. There's no debit for the loss of life or the destruction of people's homes or the destruction of ecologies. When we measure the world's GDP, we become beholden to certain goals that will have consequences for what worlds we build. And as we will hear, what kinds of lives are valued or not valued? No longer in biological terms, as with eugenics, but in economic terms. So I asked Murphy, what if there were a better way of measuring GDP? What if we had a GDP that was able to count all the things she might like to be included in GDP? So yeah, so that's a great question because we can begin to talk about some other assumptions that go into GDP. So GDP has a kind of premise that it's measuring the national economy. So it makes a kind of container of the nation state, right? But it's this fiction that this is the kind of container by which exchange takes place is inside the nation state. So we could say that as well as the kind of models of economy that GDP is attached to are ones of like a closed system, right? All that is bought equals all that is produced. You know, there's kind of these like uh, assumptions of an equation of homeostasis inside a closed system that undergirds the measure of GDP that uh, don't really reflect the way uh, the world works. So we could say that. But I'd also say I don't want a surveillance state world where every action we're doing is being monetized and brought into a system of value. To me, that sounds like a nightmare to have a system where everything we're doing is being turned into a measure to decide whether or not it serves the good of the macro economy. GDP as a measure, it only cares about the absolute wealth of the whole. It does not care about the distribution of wealth inside of the collective it measures. And so if we had the kind of full surveillance system of all our transactions, it would do nothing to help the question of the profound inequity um, that we have today. But Murphy thinks of GDP beyond its obvious properties as a number, metric, or institution. It's something she calls a phantasmogram. When I use the idea of the phantasmogram, I'm really trying to think about the effective force of numbers and the ways that things like GDP project out a sense that there is such a thing as economy, as a kind of sublime horizon to our lives. It gives a kind of palpable and felt 
sense to the economy as a horizon, even if we know nothing about the actual economic models that economists use or know nothing about the mechanics of the measure of GDP, even if we have no quantitative relationship to the economy, we feel that we're in a container of the economy as our as our kind of natural surround. We live in this world full of all sorts of numbers. GDP is just one of them. Quantification numbers that come out of the social sciences that when we dig down at them, they may have more or less facticity. And that has little relation to how forceful they are for us emotionally. Now armed with this understanding of GDP, let's get back to what all this has to do with population, with the governance of life. So in the book, the kind of archive that I'm looking at is a history over the let's say, last century or so, of traffic and social science, mostly between the United States and Bangladesh. So thinking about this traffic and social science, particularly in the kind of rule of experts who care about governing population, particularly the problem of too many people for the sake of the problem of economy. So in that history, we see the question of how many people should be born getting attached to the question of how to have a higher GDP per capita, how to raise the amount that a life contributes to GDP. So in that history, then we have a history of deciding that some lives are not worth being born. Some lives are not worth saving and caring for some calculations of some lives being declared of negative value for GDP. They are drain on GDP. And so we have this proliferation of acceptable, deeply racist calculations about life not worth existing because of its relation to GDP. So there's all sorts of measures that go into that and all sorts of projects. But an important one is the rise of the demographic transition. The demographic transition is, I would call another kind of phantasmogram. It is a model that was developed at mid-century by mostly US and UK demographers who are kind of beginning the field of population studies. And the project of population control. I'm going to jump in and explain the demographic transition model quickly. As Murphy says, it describes a trajectory in the relationship between birth rates and death rates that progresses as a nation moves from a, quote, primitive condition to an industrial condition. So it starts with primitive or pre-industrial economies where birth rates and death rates are high, so they cancel each other out and keep the population flat. What follows is the period of beginning industrialization, modernization, or essentially colonization, where, as the demographers understood it, colonial public health technologies reduced death rates, but did not reduce birth rates. So because fewer people were dying, but the same amount were being born, population would increase. Finally, once the economy enters the industrial phase, birth rates also decrease. So both birth and death rates are low, and there's another plateau of stability. And so the kind of question of the demographic transition using this model, which was basically just a chart, um, was to say, well, okay, we need to figure out how to not just assume that countries are going to naturally progress through this, this model. We need to govern their 
population, their birth rate, their death rate, and their process of industrialization in order to achieve the ideal of this model. The demographic transition model became less of a description of a purported natural social process and became more of a way to imagine an ideal trajectory of development to try and create in the world. And so this demographic transition model was used to justify the conjoining of population control programs together with industrial economic development programs as the way to best increase GDP. The argument was at the time that actually reducing births, a life not lived, is more effective to increase GDP than investments in infrastructure, for example. So the demographic transition was a very powerful abstract model. It was reportedly developed relative to data based on England, but when we go back and demographers look at that matchup, it doesn't really hold up. But it became a kind of universal model that was applied to India, Mexico, Japan, Taiwan, Kenya, like pick a place. It's a universal model of how the modern nation state would develop that is actually still used today. Now they've just added a fourth phase or a kind of an additional phase where population in a post-industrial country population falls. And so this idea that, you know, you're, you're intervening into birth rate for the sake of GDP was governed by this very powerful social science model that still has traction today, even though if we take serious the research in demography that looks at the data that tries to fit the data to this model, this model completely falls apart. It's not held on to by demographers. Yet, it's incredibly efficacious in the world as a policy object, and as an object that shapes the governance of life over the course of the 20th century. So that's an example. And then as you go forward into the, the 20th century, we don't just have the question of how do birth rates affect GDP, but we have the whole proliferation of global health projects, of family planning as a transnational project funded by the United States that produces all sorts of metrics to try to figure out what's the best investment in order to get the double hit of reducing birth and increasing GDP. Yeah, uh, I want to just clarify in here, am I correct in saying your beef with the model is not just that it isn't empirically true? (laughs) Absolutely. Right, okay. My beef with the model is that it was a great vehicle for justifying and organizing population control programs that were ultimately racist, sexist, casteist, and created all sorts of acceptable calculations of a purported lives not worth living. Right. I want to also clarify within, you know, when we talk about racism or sexism and and things like that, or casteism within the academy, I think it isn't necessarily bound up with ideas about individual intentions, right? So I, I want to see if we could maybe talk a little bit about what makes these models have either racist consequences when at the same time understanding that they perhaps are coming from actually very well-intentioned efforts. Well, sometimes it is actually explicitly racist. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, or we, and we can also say classist. The transnational project of deciding which people should not have children at an aggregate level in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s was very racist. In the United States, it tended to target black communities, Latino communities, indigenous communities. 
and in the creation of a transnational U.S.-sponsored family planning program, it was very much targeting the poorest people. It was the poorest people whose lives were seen as least desirable. So I don't want to apologize for, for that bit of history, which had really real consequences on people's lives. But I'll also say this, though. Once you have the establishment of population control and public health infrastructures that are built as part of economic development projects in places like, for example, Bangladesh, once you have the beginning of the creation of these platforms for adjusting health and adjusting birth rates for the sake of the economy, you can have all sorts of projects proliferate in those conditions. So you can have feminist projects appropriating the gigantic flows of money that went into population control from the United States during this period towards all sorts of community-oriented or even feminist ends. At the same time, though, we can look at a whole huge thick archive, which I think of as a kind of post-colonial thick data of social science being produced in the period from the 1960s through the, the 1990s that were about studying the fertility of poor women around the world ad nauseum as the problem site for governing the nation. And those projects are non-innocent. They're in complicated complicities with this larger history of the economization of life. Right. So your argument in the book kind of culminates with the figure of the girl. How do you see the girl as, as uh, I guess, an investable, <laughs> what's the word, a life that can be invested in as being, as I read it, a, a culmination of these histories that you, you've been um, tracing? Just to back up a little bit, in terms of thinking about this history of making post-colonial thick data, the example that I describe of that is the case of the Matlab field site of what is now the International Center of Diarrheal Disease Research. And this center, in this institute in Bangladesh, is a really important place for the study of diarrhea disease. And diarrhea is something that kills a hell of a lot of people. And it's a form of mortality and morbidity that is often the consequence of not having infrastructures of clean water and sanitation. And so it's a consequence of building some kinds of worlds and not others. In her book, Murphy recounts how Matlab invented a cheap way to prevent diarrheal deaths through oral rehydration therapy or ORT. While this saved millions of lives, it also focused research efforts on treatment over prevention. Because ORT could cheaply reduce mortality rates, the cost-effectiveness of infrastructural projects to provide clean water and sanitation was lowered. And so the economic consequences of ORT meant those infrastructures were never put in place. This is one example of how economic logics led to the creation of one kind of world and not another. As Murphy writes, ORT averts death but cannot hope to undo the uneven distribution of diarrhea itself. Motlob is also important to Murphy because it points to what she calls the post-colonial precursor to big data. She writes, what is saving a life worth? 
what is the price for a life not to be born? The history of differential life worth and the ways even well-intentioned research became caught in its regime evaluation is exemplified in Bangladesh's oldest and largest population laboratory, which has hosted over five decades of continuous experiment. This world-famous field site is located in Matlabtana, a rural area not so far from Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh. And so at Matlab, which began as a cholera research lab to research vaccines for cholera, actually for the sake of American soldiers, that research turned into, grew into a field site for running public health and family planning experiments, a research platform of about 250 thousand people or a quarter million people that has been in operation since the 1960s. And so this field site where this region has been under constant public health experiment has produced this enormous archive of study, study about family planning, study about gender and girls, studies about household formation, all the details of demographics for generations in this community. There were periods in the 1960s and 70s where daily data was being collected. So it's an incredible project of creating enormous thick number. You know, think of this kind of analog era of, of making big data. And out of this huge collection of big data, researchers would then find these other correlations and say, well, it's not just that fertility Reducing fertility increases GDP, but we can do things like, say, increasing the age of marriage reduces fertility and increases GDP. Or we can say that having more gender equity reduces fertility, increases GDP. Or we can say educating girls to, to grade seven increases gender equity, reduces fertility, increases GDP. So you get these studies that put together these clouds of correlations that affect to girls as the site by which you're going to get good rates of return on investment in public health programs for which the outcome will be positive for GDP. And so out of this history of quantification around girls came the argument that put forward by Lawrence Summers, who's, you know, was chief economist at the World Bank before he was, you know, president of Harvard or advisor to Obama. And he put out this influential study that said that investing in a girl's education created the highest rate of return to GDP of any investment in the developing world. And this kind of calculation put new wind in the project of family planning with a new kind of neoliberal feminist economic twist that foundations like the Nike Foundation picked up on. Put simply, neoliberal here means looking for market solutions or economic interest motivated solutions to social problems. And in the 1990s, we saw this explosion of projects that look to adjust the lives of girls in some kind of way, uh, invest in girls, as the best investment for the developing world. And whether it be the global economic crisis or increasing macroeconomic output, this was the place to put investments. And we probably have all seen these kind of advertisements in joining us to invest in girls. 
And so as an argument in the book, I try to show that this figure of investable life comes out of this longer history of deciding what lives are worth being born for the sake of GDP, what lives are worth providing medical care for, what lives are worth educating for the sake of GDP, and what lives are not worth being born, (laughs) what lives are seen as negative for the sake of GDP. So we have the emergence of these calculations where some lives increase in value if they are invested in, other lives are not worth investing in, when are disposable, they're negative for GDP. Importantly, Murphy counterposes these negatively valued lives to white middle-class lives, which are held to increase in value over time. And the opposition of poor to middle-class is not the only contrast that concerns her. In addition to the figure of the poor brown girl who can be invested in at a particular moment in her life cycle in order to get a return on that investment for the world, we have next to her the figure of the uninvestable brown boy who is not being celebrated as uh, worthy of care and concern, but is in fact the figure of fear in our contemporary American and Western figures of the brown Muslim terrorist. So we have the figure of the poor brown Muslim girl being an ideal source of investment and the figure of the boy being a kind of dangerous site of risk in this kind of racist security logic that we live in. Here, by racist security logics, Murphy is referring to the government using fear of Islamic terrorism to justify things like, for instance, surveillance of private citizens for the sake of national security. And so these two figures really come up together beginning in the 1990s, and they're really non-innocent figures. Celebrations of the investable girl really hold inside of them a really violent logic of which life is worth living and which life is not worth living. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I thought maybe we could talk just a little at the end here about this anecdote you bring in at the end of your book. You're talking about walking past some canvassers who are wearing Because I Am a Girl vests who are raising money for this kind of investment project. And the ambivalence that you felt, I don't know if that's the right way to characterize it in in talking to them. You're saying uh, for a moment, the options seem to be caring in the wrong way or not caring at all. Yeah, well, so I live in Toronto, and it just happens that the Plan Canada, which is a big promoter of the Invest in the Girl campaign, the the young people who are canvassing to raise that money, they stand about three houses away from my house often, and I walk by them all the time. And, you know, these are just young people who are living in a situation of youth unemployment, looking for a way to work and make a you know minimum wage in a way that's trying not to be violent in a world that is quite violent. And so I have a lot of sympathy for them when I you know encounter them in, in my daily life. And as I do for the many scientists that I've met, like for example, who work at Motlob, when I meet them sometimes, you know, I'm tempted to tell them about <laughs> the history of human capital and the girling of human capital and the whole history box investable girl but you know I feel like I also need to 
go beyond just a politics of critique and a politics of showing all that is wrong. And so one of the things that animates the book, The Economization of Life, is that, you know, over the last hundred years, we've been given two main ways of thinking about the politics of reproduction in the West. One is through the figure of population, which has this pernicious history we've just been talking about. And second is through the history of individual reproductive choice, where um, the solution is often then ends up being a kind of what's the rights and kind of consumption rights of the individual to be getting the kind of services they need. And I really think that kind of taking from reproductive justice and women of color reproductive justice, as well as reproductive projects that come out of Bangladesh, that reproduction is not just a politic of the individual, it's a politic of the collective. It's about the conditions under which we get to become in time together. I mean, I, I believe passionately that there are other traditions for understanding reproductive politics that help us to care the right way in terms of building collectivities of better worlds together. Right. And what, what are those traditions that you're talking about of reproductive justice? Well, I mean, in the United States, there's all sorts of traditions of feminist reproductive justice. For example, we can look at things like the Combahee River Collective out of Boston in terms of thinking about reproductive justice as not just your right to have birth control, but about the relation capacity to live without fear of police violence in your life, the capacity to live without the threat of racial violence in your daily life. This is part of what goes into reproductive justice. It's not just about birth control. It's about the conditions for community to sustain itself and well-being. It can include things like clean water. It can include things like affordable childcare. It can include things like public transportation. It can include things like a water and sanitation system that doesn't expose you to the premature death of diarrhea. So these questions about the distribution of our exposure to death and our possibilities for well-being, to me, this is what reproductive justice is about. Thanks for listening to the Down to a Science podcast. Michelle Murphy's book, which contains much more besides what was discussed on the show today, is called The Economization of Life, published by Duke University Press. Murphy's professor of history and women and gender studies at the University of Toronto. Music for this episode was provided by A. Ariel and J. Bastard Boy Productions through the Free Music Archive.